0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Morning everyone, I'm Minju, and today the scripture reading is from Acts 21 verses 1 to 26. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and, we had, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petra. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit we were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on aboard the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us the house of Nathan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Paul visits James. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and we heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses." Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take this man and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you, you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have set a le- sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. These are the true words of the living God.
1: Thank you so much, Minju. That was a marathon reading session there. Well done. (laughs) Uh, We threw in a couple of tricky names too. Uh, Can I just say well done to Isaac and Jane. Love having you uh, part of the worship team uh, first up. Very very wonderful. Well, good morning to you all. It's uh, good to see you all. I presume it's good that you are seeing me too. (laughs) Well, I am absolutely fascinated by this passage this morning, even though it's quite long and quite biographical with uh, a lot of details. In case you missed it, we are in a series on Acts. Uh, We... Have recently been looking at the gospel, and then we had a series on the Song of Ascents in the Psalms, and uh, now we are back in Acts. We were tracking with Acts uh, back in big picture days, for those of you who remember that, and we are now finding ourselves back in chapter 21. We left Paul in Acts chapter 20, where he was saying goodbye to the elders at the church of Ephesus, and he is headed on his way to Jerusalem, and that's the some of the background for... The passage that was just read for us. But before we get going, I thought what I'll do is read you a couple of quotes on uh, knowing where you're going. Now, all of these, to my knowledge, are non-Christians, the people who've written these, but they kind of say them well. So uh, I think there's a universal truth in, 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 in what they're saying. So let me just uh, stir you all to think about going places and knowing where you're going. And the first is by Rolf Waldo Emerson, who was most assuredly not a Christian, and he says this, Without knowing where you are going, you will never know if you have arrived at your destination. Without knowing where you're going, you will never know if you have arrived at your destination. Then former Secretary of, of State Henry Kissinger said this, If you do not know where you are going, every road will get you nowhere. Then uh, Lewis Carroll, the man who wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland, he said this, If you don't know where you are going, any road will do. If you don't know where you're going, any road will do. I want us to uh, think today about uh, knowing where you are going, but I will get back to that in a moment. Let's turn our attention to uh, Acts chapter 21. And uh, it's quite a passage. It's quite long, so we'll try and move through it speedily. And uh, let me just set the scene, uh, create the context, context, and uh, build some of the tension by asking you a question, and then I'm going to answer my own question with three answers. So read with me in verse 1. It says this, and when we had parted, the Greek says, when we had torn ourselves away from them, these are the elders of the church in Ephesus, so it's a sad farewell. They think they'll never see Paul again, and they were right. We came by a straight course to Kos. It's a lovely uh, Greek island if any of you are looking for a vacation spot. And the next day to Rhodes, which is also a lovely spot, so I'm told. And from there to Pata, Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, that's on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, we went on board and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, we passed it on the left and we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Okay, so we're just kind of flicking through Paul's Instagram account. He's taking uh, selfies as he's passing all these islands. It's just a quick travel log of where he's been and where he's going. And then he gets to Tyre. That's kind of north of Jerusalem, if you can sort of picture that in your mind. And they get off there. And then in verse 4, having sought out the disciples. So these are disciples. There's evidently a church in uh, Tyre. We stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, and through the Spirit, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, so they just closed church for the day, and all of them headed off with Paul. Because through the Spirit, they said, don't go to Jerusalem. But the next thing we read is Paul is like, okay, bye, see you later. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And then they all go with him, walk out the city. They make their way down to the port where he's going to get on board another uh, vessel. And uh, we read this touching scene. We accompanied, and They accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. You can just picture it. I don't know, maybe they're in the waves. Maybe they're on the beach in the sand but they're all there, and they're crying, and they're going to say goodbye to Paul. The Holy Spirit has told them there's a lot of danger in Jerusalem. They interpret that as saying, Paul, you shouldn't go there. But Paul says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. And then they kind of know and are picking up that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to lose his life. And so here they are on the beach. It's very touching. It's very sentimental. He has their leader. He has one of the prime leaders of the faith is willingly going towards persecution. And so they're crying there on, on, the, on the seashore by the side of the ship at Changi Airport, if you will, in the, in the airport lounge. All of us are there, whoever it is who's about to leave, to certain death. Even the kids are involved. And we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7, then we finished the voyage from Tyre. We arrived at Ptolemao. And greeted the brothers, so they check into another church, and stayed with them for one day. Not seven, but one on this occasion. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And if you've been reading with Luke all the way from the beginning, you'll remember some of the early deacons in chapter 6. Philip was one of them. So they go and book in at his Airbnb. And uh, they stay there, and he had four unmarried daughters, verse 10. Uh, by the way, they all prophesied, says Luke. There's a lot of Holy Spirit talking and prophecy going on in this passage. hope you notice. Verse 10, when we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. We already met Agabus in chapter 11. Agabus came and prophesied that there was going to be a famine, and tough times were coming on the church. Historical records prove that Agabus was absolutely correct. This is all historic uh, fact. So Agabus is coming from Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. But here, Agabus comes from Jerusalem to intercept him halfway. And Agabus, who's this well-renowned prophet, he's already had one kind of incredible prophecy which had international implications. So he's attested he's a, he's a true blue Prophet, he came, and at verse 7, he came to us, this is in Caesarea in Philip's house, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is talking again. This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem, just like the church in Tyre. The Holy Spirit said, hey, there's trouble for Paul in Jerusalem. They interpret the messages, "Don't go to Jerusalem." Verse 13, then Paul answered, "What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart?" And then listen to this: "For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded... We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so, it's a bit of drama. He has a man who's on his way to Jerusalem, and he keeps bumping into people who are speaking through the Holy Spirit, saying there's danger and there's trouble in Jerusalem, don't go. They interpret what the Holy Spirit is telling them as a message to not go. Paul says, I hear you, but I'm still going. So this poses the question, which I want to pose to us all. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Why did Paul, in this context, in this background, why did Paul go to Jerusalem? And I'm going to give you three answers. Number one, because Paul was a man of calling. Number two, Paul was a man of care, of care. It's all C's. Easy to remember. Number one, he's a man of calling. Number two, he's a man of care. Number three, he's a man of the church. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem despite the Holy Spirit saying there's danger there and other godly people counseling him against going there? Number one, he was a man of calling. Number two, he was a man of care. Number three, he was a man of the church. And so let me try and explain some of this. Okay, first thing, Paul is a man of calling. By the way, this is a great, great, great exercise in knowing and understanding the context of a passage instead of just looking at it in isolation, because Luke has intended you to read them from start to finish, and as you're going along, he's dropping clues and crafting his story, and is already giving us hints to help us understand and explain some of this passage. So if you flip back to chapter 20, which numerically is the chapter before 21, Leading up to this, Paul says this, he's talking to the, uh, the, the leaders of the church at Ephesus, and he says this in verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. It's a strange word, constrained. Other translations say compelled, so let me just read it like that. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Other translations say, if only I may finish my task. If only I may finish my task or my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What is that ministry? It's this, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So here, what we have in those words, which is preceding or leading up to this chapter 21, which is our text today, is a statement of calling. And I want to explain calling in two ways, general calling and specific calling. And they're both found in these three verses from chapter 20, verse 22 to uh, 24. Let's begin with general calling. You see, Paul understood the general calling on his life. By the time he died, he knew that God had asked him to do a general work. He had a general life's calling. He had a work to do. He had a life's work which God had for him. It's quite generic. And in his particular case, it's this. Uh, And I'll just reread it just so it really gets into us because I think these are... Famous and wonderful words. If only I may finish my course, if only I may end my life, do my task, and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. This is the general calling on me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'm a preacher. That's what I have to do. That's what God has called me to do. It's a gen- Just talking in generalities, in the generic, in the general, the calling on my life is to be a preacher and to speak about Jesus. That's going to take me everywhere. It's going to take me to multiple different cities. That's the general calling on my life. We're answering the question, why did Paul go to Jerusalem, despite the fact that good people were saying don't? The first answer, it's in keeping with his calling. Do you know what your calling is? Is a question which comes out of this. Because if you don't know, you're not going to be able to navigate your way through life. That's generic. There's an overall work which God wants of him by the end of his days. What about the specific? Well, in verse 22, he says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit had told Paul to go to Jerusalem. He's got a general call to be a preacher, but the Holy Spirit here is giving him a specific calling for this season of your life, for these few months of your life. For this year of your life, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, verse 23, there's trouble and there's imprisonment waiting for you. But I'm still asking you specifically, in keeping with your general calling, I've got a specific calling for you to get to Jerusalem. So by the time he bumps into the folk in twenty-one, chapter 21, who tell him the Holy Spirit is saying there's difficulty awaiting you, his answer is, Newsflash, I already know. The Holy Spirit has been telling me this for years. For years. The Holy Spirit tells me every city I go to, there's trouble, there's trouble. The folk in 21 then tried to interpret that by saying, danger means don't go. But Paul says, with the greatest respect, the Holy Spirit has been telling me, yes, there's trouble. But the Holy Spirit has been specifically telling me, I want you, Paul, to get to Jerusalem. This is very, very, very challenging. Do we know what our calling is? And do we know what God is asking of us in each season? Because often the presumption is difficulty means don't do it. But here it's the other way around. Difficulty is actually a confirmation of, Paul, you're on the right track, keep going. And here's a man who is in touch with God, who walks with God, who knows the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is told clearly at least twice, which brings me to chapter 19, which sequentially is the chapter before, chapter 20. Chapter 19, verse 21, says this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to where? Jerusalem chapter 19 he gets a specific call to go to Jerusalem chapter 20 he gets a repeat call go to Jerusalem there's going to be trouble it's in keeping with your general calling chapter 21 the folks start hearing from the Holy Spirit there's trouble there's trouble there's trouble there's trouble but Paul says and then they interpret that as saying don't go but Paul says actually the Holy Spirit has been telling me all along that I have to go Paul is a man of calling this is super challenging. Because going back to Rolf, Waldo, Ermerson, and co, if you don't know where you are going, any road is going to take you nowhere. Do you know what God is asking of you? You might have a plan for your life. That doesn't mean it's God's plan. Just having a plan of your own devising is frankly not good enough. What is it that God is asking of you? That's the huge challenge. If you know that, and if you are absolutely convinced that the Holy Spirit, and and I'm unashamedly talking about the Holy Spirit here, because at least four times we've read it in these passages. The Holy Spirit speaks to His church. If you're a conservative Bible reader, you believe that the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit is speaking to these people, guiding them. The Holy Spirit is in charge. And Paul says, look, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey the calling which God has for me. So here's the challenge. Church, are we going to be a people who's going to listen, who's going to take the time to say, God, what is your general calling over me? And what would you like me to be doing now? And when trouble and hardship come our way, if we are convinced that God has asked us to do things, we go straight through. I'm so inspired by Paul. I think this is incredible. Okay, that is number, answer number one. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Well, the first answer, and I think they get better and better, by the way. The first answer is he's a man of calling. He knows what he's about. God has spoken to him. God wants him, the Holy Spirit wants him to get to Jerusalem. Okay, let's give that a little bit more color. Uh, Maybe I can talk about my own life briefly. So, I feel God gave me a calling. I can trace it, well, I can trace this idea to many different occasions, but one in particular to 1997, Easter, that weekend, where I felt God gave me a general calling to be a preacher of his word to the nations of the world. That overall calling has kept me, has held me, has given me direction. Things never go in a straight line. They don't even zigzag. They go all over the show. I don't know if you've noticed this about life. But if you have a big idea of what God is asking of you, by the time you die, as it were, the talents that have been put in your hand, and there's some kind of accounting for it one day when you stand before Him, if you have a general sense of what that is, it helps you go through difficulties. And those words which God gave me, as it were, in peacetime, in the safe country, well before the real rough seas hit, hold you when you're going through those rough seas. Let's be a people who is attentive to God's word. Okay, answer number two is he is a man who cares. Number one, why did he go to Jerusalem? Number two is he's a man who cares. He's a man who cares. This is one of the greatest passages in the Bible for mercy and justice. You won't read it anywhere in these words, but if you know the surrounding context, it shouts out to you. Because here's the background to what's really going on here. For the past couple of years, we don't know exactly how long, at least a year, maybe two, somewhere around there, Paul has been working his way around the churches that he's planted and established, taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. You can read this all over the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, chapter 9. It's in 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, where he tells the church, hey, when you come together on a Sunday, pass the hat around, take up a collection, I'm going to come, I'm going to take it, and we're going to take it back to the church in Jerusalem. He mentions it in Romans, chapter 15, as well. He will also mention it in, and I'm going to here break the uh, sequence, sadly, in chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 17, where he's now in court, and spoiler alert, he gets arrested in Jerusalem. We're we going to deal with that next week. Okay. It all came true. Agabus was right. The prophets and Tyre were right. There is going to be trouble in Jerusalem. He gets arraigned. He gets brought before a court in uh, uh, before Felix, I believe. And then in verse 17, he says this, retelling the story of how it is that he got to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 24, verse 17, he says this, now after several years, I came to bring arms to my nation. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? He had been taking up an offering for the poor Christians in the Jerusalem church. And he had this huge bag of gold as it were. I like to think of it as a bag of gold. He had, a, he had a huge wallet, full of money, which he'd taken up from multiple churches. And he knew the Christians were suffering in Jerusalem. And despite almost certain death and pain and imprisonment and danger and persecution, he still said, when people tried to dissuade him from going, he said his second reason for going was, No. There are people who are suffering there. There are the poor, there are the vulnerable, and I have this money, and I want to go, and I want to take it, and I want to deliver this in person. Why? Because I love the poor. Isn't that amazing? This is very challenging. We find it hard even to part with some of our money to give to the poor let alone risk your life, to then part with some of your money. But this is what he's doing, and this is the context, and it screams out to you. He's insistent on getting to Jerusalem. Part of why the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. Yes, share the gospel, of course. But also, I want you to go and love those poor folk there in Jerusalem. And uh, we can, just to give you a bit more color on this, uh, in Romans chapter 15, he will write about this uh, when he says this. At present, this is verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. So this is, he's writing the letter to the Romans and he's en route to Jerusalem. This, the, some of the bigger context for chapter 21. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So, second application point. First application point is we're going to be a people of calling. We are going to take the general calling of God and the specific callings of God seriously. The second thing I think this text urges and instructs us to take seriously, is the poor. Can we all make a collective commitment to the poor at ECP? Can we do that? Can we say we are committed to serving and helping the poor? The example of Paul is so inspirational. He's doing this at personal risk, at risk to his health. I think it's quite, quite, quite stellar and uh, i'm I'm so grateful for the good folk who are already seeding things in ECP uh, starting a few initiatives um, to help and serve some of the poor and the vulnerable in uh, this city of ours in Singapore. I pray for you guys honestly and i uh, I want to fan into flame that so if if you're part of that, go for it guys you've you've got the weight of the Bible behind you and uh We can all be involved, whether it's prayer or if it's giving or if it's actual people physically actually going to help as well. So uh, one of our commitments at ECP, and I speak here on behalf of the leaders for the moment, is uh, we want to make a commitment, um, not only to the lost, but also to the poor. Okay, I promised you three reasons. The third reason why Paul is going to Jerusalem is because he loves the church because he loves the church. So this just gets more magnificent the more you read it. So he's going there to take the gospel, according with his calling. He's going there to help the poor, as we've just read. But there's another reason why he's going. He's going there to patch up relationships. Sorry, give me a sec. Everyone deserves a water break. He's going there to patch up relationships. So if you are still in Romans 15, remember he was writing to the Romans saying, hey, I'm en route to Jerusalem in service of the the poor there. But if you flip down, same chapter, a few verses later in verse 30, he then asks the Roman Christians to pray for him as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he says this, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So this great apostle is asking the Roman Christians to pray for him. Why is he asking for prayer? Well, he says in verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. It's one of the most remarkable verses. He's coming with a big bag of gold. And he's saying to these Romans, I'm so nervous about going to the Jerusalem church because they might not accept me. They might not even accept the money that I'm bringing them. And they are poor. You've got to read between the lines here to know that there's a bit of relational tension going on. He's praying. He's saying, of all the things you can pray for, please may poor people accept this very generous offering I'm giving them. And again, some of the context is helpful here. Why? What was going on here? And what happens if we carry on reading? And let's continue reading in uh, Acts 21. Is that the brothers there thought that Paul was so anti Jews and Jewish Christians that he was coming down with a whole lot of really, 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 really strict legalistic kind of laws and rules and procedures? And they didn't quite know about this. And there were rumors afoot that he was very anti-Jew. To the extent that they might not even accept the offering that he was bringing. And so this brings us uh, furthermore uh, into verse uh, 16. And some of the disciples, just picking up the story where we left it off. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly. So the reason Luke puts that in there is it was a success. They actually received Paul. And he goes out of his way to say, look, they might not have received us, but actually they received us gladly. The the prayers of the Roman Christians worked. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, They glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews. This is in the church in Jerusalem. A lot of Jews became Christians. And those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law, verse 21. And they have been told, so this was the rumor that was going afoot, which was creating some kind of relational difficulty, verse 21. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? What are we going to do? Now you here in the church. people, You've got this reputation. It's going to create difficulty in our church. What are we going to do? Then they come up with a plan, verse 23, uh, 22 at least, halfway through. They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This was a Nazarite vow that they were taking. It's a, an Old Testament practice. Verse 24, take these men and purify yourselves. This is at the temple. Along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. That's all part of the Nazarite vow. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. So all these rumors about you can be, can be crushed. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles, we who have believed, we have sent a letter. So these are non-Jewish Christians. Uh, the Gentiles and all the other nations of the world, he says, who have believed, we've already sent them a letter. Without judgment, they should abstain from a couple of things like food sacrificed to idols, from blood, uh, from strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. All right, there's a lot there, so I'll try and keep it simple. They were Christians. They came to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But they still had a few Jewish customs which they were finding hard to let go of. Shaving their head, making a vow to God, stuff which... New Testament Christianity, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. But they, were, they believed in Jesus, they were absolutely saved, and they were Christians, but they had a few cultural practices which were just kind of finding it hard to get cut loose of. And they feared that Paul was going to stamp these things out, and that was going to create a tension. But Paul takes the high road here, and he says to them, actually... The big thing is Jesus, putting your faith in him and having salvation in him. That's already happened. These folks are already Christians. But some of these smaller details, I'm not going to go to war with you on that, and I can go with you to the temple. I'm not against it. I'm not going to major on the minor. I'm going to keep the focus on the big thing, keep the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus. If you're going to the temple to get your salvation at the temple, I'm going to fight with you then. And that's Paul has been very clear throughout his ministry. But seeing that you're not going to the temple for salvation, but it's more of some cultural practice. I'm not going to split the church over this. He risked his life to do that. Isn't it? such a tragedy often in Christianity where people break relationship over the minor things, not the major things. And uh, here, let me, um, let me read a quick quote from uh, someone who runs the biggest hedge fund in the world, Ray Dalio. And uh, he, he puts it quite well. He says this, Don't let your disagreement on the little things divide you when your agreement on the big things should bind you. This is for all of us. Don't let your disagreement on the little things divide you when your agreement on the big things should bind you. Almost every group that agrees on the big things ends up fighting about less important things and becoming enemies, even though they should be bound by the big things. Isn't this true? We often fight over the small things. The phenomenon is called, listen to this, and this is a term from Sigmund Freud. The phenomenon is called the narcissism of small differences. The narcissism of small differences. And most of those who can articulate the differences realize that they are insignificant. They realize the differences are insignificant relative to the big important things that should bind them together. I once saw a close family have an irrevocable blowout at Thanksgiving dinner over who would cut the turkey. Don't let this narcissism of small differences happen to you. Paul was a man who loved the church, who risked his life to go and make sure that the relationship with the Jerusalem church was intact. He didn't minor, didn't major on the minor. He kept the main thing the main thing, which is salvation in Jesus third application for us, can we be a people of calling, can we be a people who care for the poor and can we be a people of perspective who love the church and who keep the main thing the main thing without fighting over small little doctrinal things which so often creep into church I want to wrap this all up, thank you for being so patient I know I'm well over time today fourth thing is we're a people of patience (laughs) It's not a C. (laughs) Adlin, that is absolutely true. All right. The fourth C is... uh, Patience. Uh, The fourth C is Christ. The fourth C is Christ. Why would Paul risk his life to go into all this difficulty? And the answer is Jesus Christ. If you go back to his words in chapter 20, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, when Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins, when he's washed you clean, you will go to any limits for him. By the way, in this passage, we come across Philip. Paul murdered Philip's best friend, Stephen. At the end of the chapter, Paul is now a house guest in Philip's house. We read about Nason, one of the early disciples, who was persecuted by Paul. Paul was a bad, bad, bad guy, but the grace of Jesus found him. It's so powerful that he ends up being house guests of the people he persecuted years before, who literally killed—he killed, he killed his, these people's friends. When the grace of God, the forgiveness of Jesus catches hold of you with such power and that you are forgiven from the wickedness that you've done. You might not have done things as bad as Paul, but sin before God is just as bad. We might as well be Paul. But when Jesus forgives you, when he washes you clean, when the grace of Jesus catches you, suddenly you are new. Suddenly you don't have a life that you're holding on to. You've given it up to him. The bad, old, sinful life, you give to him so it can be nailed to the cross. And you can have a new life where you can walk with him and follow him, be a person of calling. You can have the Holy Spirit fill you. That's what it is to be a Christian. The Holy Spirit, God himself, will be inside you and will be talking to you and guiding you through your career and your job and your marriage and your difficulties. You'll be a person who suddenly loves the poor, who has grace for the weak and the vulnerable. Because you were weak and you were poor and Christ found you. And then you'll be a person who loves the church. You'll be a people who loves people. Because Jesus loves people. Jesus wants a unified church. And he wants the big thing to be the big thing and not the small thing to be the big thing. And when you're in him and when you've been so radically touched and changed by the gospel of grace, you'll be able to love your brothers and live sacrificially. And thank you for being patient. Let's end it there. Let me pray for us all. Lord, thank you so much for saving our souls, for bringing us into this kingdom. We are so inspired by Paul, this man, this journey. Despite the danger, despite the difficulty, he followed you. We want to be people who follow you. Would you help us, Lord? For those who are struggling with their calling, Holy Spirit, would you speak this moment? General callings, specific callings. Lord, let us be a church that loves the poor to the point of sacrifice and danger. And Lord, let us be a church that always keeps you as the main thing, the high point. Holy Spirit, we have read about you in so many places today. Would you come with power and glory and hold us? Would you lead this church? Would you speak to this church? Would we be a people under your instruction? A people who will follow you no matter what, Lord, no matter what. For those going through difficult things, for those who find themselves in their own form of Jerusalem and difficulty and struggle, would you help them in this room today? For those who are young and eager, who are wanting to hear about their callings, Those who grappling with job choices. Would you speak today I ask Lord.
0: You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.